0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke, Luke chapter 24. Earlier, uh, when we read from the Scripture, when Scott read from the Scripture, we read an account from John, and that account with Mary was the morning of that first Easter Sunday. And the Gospels record that account for us. And then Luke records what we're going to talk about today, which was the afternoon of Easter Sunday. And all of the Gospels record the evening of Easter Sunday. So if you read through the different accounts, the four different accounts, you'll get a picture of the whole day of Easter Sunday. And what's interesting, at least I thought it was interesting, is that in one day, Jesus goes back and he sums up his entire three-year ministry. And he doesn't just go out to the crowds like he did before he died. He doesn't go do a bunch of miracles like he did before he died. He simply goes back to his family, friends, and followers, those who were heartbroken, those who were hopeless, those who had put everything on the line for his cause. He goes back to them, and in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, he spends time showing them what his whole purpose really was. He'd told them for three years. For three years, he had told them, he had shown them, he had walked with them, he had taught them. But in three years, almost nobody understood really what Jesus had come to do. And so he spends a day, Easter Sunday, going back and reminding them what he had said and why that everything that he had endured on the cross and in the tomb why it mattered so much to their futures so we're going to look at the afternoon story the afternoon account we saw Jesus appear to Mary earlier in John and what you need to remember is that she took that information back when she finally understood and recognized Jesus Someone she had known for years, someone she had spent time close to. After she finally recognized him, she ran back to the disciples, Peter and and John and those guys, and she said, Jesus is alive. He's here. I saw him. And a couple of accounts record that Peter and John get up and they run to the tomb. And they get to the tomb, and the stones rolled away, which is really weird. The guards aren't around which is really weird. And the tomb is empty, which is the strangest thing of all. I imagine Peter and John were super excited. They had probably become, been so overcome with grief and despair that Jesus was gone that when Mary came and said, I saw Jesus, they had this little hope, this little tiny speck of hope that caused them, it must have been powerful, to get up and to run to see Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, he was alive. But they get there and they see nothing. And I imagine the walk back was even worse than it had been the day before, waiting and not knowing anything about what was going to happen. And they walk back. And then Luke in chapter 24 tells us this story. This story, uh, not about Peter, not about John. Not about any famous disciple, famous apostle. It tells us about two followers of Jesus. We don't know how long they had been followers. I assume it had been a good amount of time, but maybe they hadn't been there for the full three years. We don't really know much about them other than they had certain expectations for Jesus. And now... On Easter Sunday, after Jesus had been killed and all this, all of the rioting and, and everything that was going on in Jerusalem, just this, this crazy set of circumstances, after that, and they waited three days. Nothing had happened. They decide it's time to walk back home. And they walk back to the town of Emmaus. It's about seven miles away from Jerusalem. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 24 of Luke. I'm sorry, verse 13, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And Jesus said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you're having with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? So they said to Jesus, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, were and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that he had, they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Emmaus is about an hour and a half walk from Jerusalem. So for an hour and a half, these two disciples, these two followers of Christ, had ample opportunity to recap everything they had experienced that weekend in Jerusalem, It had been Passover, so it was important for the Jews to return to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover if they could get there. And these two obviously could get there. And it was even more important for these two because Jesus had chosen to return to Jerusalem in a triumphant manner, echoing David and giving his followers and everybody there, really, all of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, giving them this hope that finally the Messiah had come. Finally, the kingdom of God was at hand. And if you, know, you remember the story of Jesus writing in out, everybody was shouting it, his close followers, and people who were there and just caught up in the hype. They were shouting it. It was close to being a citywide riot. Everyone was in a frenzy, and the Romans were worried because things might get out of hand real quick. Imagine if you were a follower of Christ. Imagine if you had walked with Jesus for three years, from the beginning of his ministry till this weekend. And imagine that over and over and over again, he had proved to you that he truly was the Son of of God, He taught things that the religious leaders didn't teach. He opened up scripture in a way that nobody considered. He got to the heart of matters in a way that the Jewish people had not understood for thousands of years. And not just that, he wasn't just a great teacher. He did miracles. And the greatest miracle that we read about that he did, if you had to rank them, The greatest one he did was he told a dead man to get up and walk. And what happened? That dead man stayed in the grave and didn't do anything, right? Not a chance. The God of life can't be stopped by death, it's not stronger than him. And when Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, get up and get out here, it's not time for you to die. John records that people were astounded. I imagine, it's kind of quiet in here, I imagine it would have been like that. Dead silence. A dead man just got up and walked out of a grave. And there was no question that he was dead. He'd been dead so long he, was, he smelled like he was decaying. And Jesus said, get up and walk. Now, if you had been there that day, Peter was there that day, John was there that day, maybe Cleopas and this other disciple were there that day, I don't know. But if you had been there that day, how could you ever not think Jesus was the Son of God? I mean, who else did did something like that? Who else could? So imagine that, and then imagine Friday night when Jesus screams out in agony because he's bearing the weight of the cross and he's bearing the weight of your sin and he's bearing the weight of God's wrath. He screams out and he says it is finished and he breathes his last and he dies. Can you imagine what the disciples would have thought? I imagine it was quiet. Utter hopelessness because Jesus, the Messiah, was dead. So, If you have an hour and a half to walk home, and you had just been through that, you probably have a lot to talk about. And Jesus points out that these guys are sad. It's it's, it's obvious. They are upset. Something's wrong. They're not excited. They're going back home because they have no hope, and because they have no more purpose. Jesus asked people to leave everything they had behind, right? Matthew was a tax collector. He was working. It was tax day. And he said, Matthew, get up. Leave all that behind and come with me. Peter, you have a fishing business and it's probably doing pretty good. Your dad started it and you work with him and you love your dad. Peter and your brother, leave your dad, leave his business, let it go. However, it's going to go now and come with me. He asked people to leave everything behind and to give everything to him. So, can you imagine if that person in your life who you chose to follow dies? Imagine how hopeless you would feel and imagine how purposeless you would feel They had a purpose. they walked with Jesus wherever he went, they went, whatever he said to do, they did he 's gone now there's nothing left to do, and there's no hope this was jesus wasn 't the first person. Before, and he wasn't the first person after to come and claim to be the Messiah, to be the one who was going to fulfill the Old Testament promise that God had made to his people. He wasn't the first. If you read through Jewish history, you'll see there were plenty of people who said these things. And people who created followings. But I have to bet that nothing was quite like following Jesus because he was the actual son of God and the actual Messiah sent. But he's dead. And they have an hour and a half walk to talk about it. And this guy comes up behind them. And he starts to overhear what they're saying. And they turn to look at him. Now, how did they not know? It's Jesus. They knew what he looked like. He wasn't in disguise. Didn't put on a different body. Didn't grow a mustache real quick if he didn't have one before. Didn't put on any sunglasses. It was Jesus. And the Bible tells us, and the same was true for Mary, they were kept from seeing him. You know why they were kept from seeing him? Because they didn't understand who Jesus really was. And for three years, or however long they walked with him, however many Bible studies they sat through with him, however many church services they heard him preach, and however many people he called to raise from the dead, they did not know Jesus because they were blind. Jesus is going to point that out to them here in a second, but I just want you to know that where we're going with this account and where we're going with this is that the resurrection, the resurrection gives us many things, and two important things it gives us is hope and purpose. Hope and purpose are things that you and I are always searching for. Especially if we're honest with ourselves, we know that humanity, humans are searching for hope and for purpose. We want to accomplish something. We want to do something that matters. And if we have no hope, what's our purpose? And if we don't have a purpose for our lives, then that's a good indication that we probably don't have any hope in anything. And these two disciples, and John and Peter and Mary, and all the rest of them, their hope died Friday night, and it got to sit there, and the hopelessness got to grow and fester for three days, and their purpose dwindled away to nothing so much that people just started to leave. Jerusalem was the place, it was going to be the place where, where, uh, where Jesus finally fulfilled his purpose is the Messiah, overthrew the Roman Empire, set up the glorious kingdom of Israel again, and it was gonna be like the second coming of David when Israel was at the height of its power in the golden age, and it had come again. And that's hope and purpose for his followers. But he dies, and there's no hope, and there's no reason to stick around now, so it's time to go back home. So they're sad, and they're walking, and Jesus comes up, and they don't recognize him. And so he says this, well, they, well, he says, why are you so sad? What is going on? What's wrong? And they say, I got to imagine that they stop and say, they just kind of shake their heads like, seriously? Do you live under a rock? Where have you been, buddy? Are you the only one who doesn't know what just shook the city of Jerusalem? The only headline that was going on this past weekend? That Jesus, who claimed to be the king of the Jews, our, our master, the one we'd followed, that he was killed. And we waited. We waited. We waited three days. He said something about three days. We waited. Nothing happened. <laughs> if Jesus was in a joking mood, I don't know if he was. But if he was, he might have said, you know, I'm actually the only person who does know what just happened. Where have you been? the past three years. But Jesus doesn't say that. After they get done basically telling him exactly what had happened all weekend and that they had no more hope because they thought Jesus was going to redeem Israel, after they get done saying that, then Jesus talks back to them. In verse 25, Jesus says, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe "'in all that the prophets have spoken.'" Ought not the Christ, who had suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's uh, interesting to note here, and we have problems because in English, translating and understanding what was written in Greek or in Hebrew, sometimes we, we lose out on what's being said. And when Jesus says, oh foolish ones, he's not saying, you idiots. He's not saying, you guys are so stupid. He could have, but he's not saying that. What he's saying to them is, you unwise people. Foolish is the opposite of the wise person. And if you read through Proverbs, you see how the wise person acts and how the foolish person acts. And a fool is someone who is morally bankrupt. They're not unintelligent. They're not stupid. They're not idiots. They're morally bankrupt. They're blind to the truth of God. The wise person follows the truth of God. The foolish person is blind, won't follow the truth of God. It follows their own truth, their own version of things. And see, Jesus gets right to the heart of the problem with these two disciples and Peter and John and Mary, and the rest of them who were back in Jerusalem hiding out, hopeless and purposeless. He gets right to the heart of the issue. The issue for them there was that they did not believe. They were blinded by their own sin. They would rather believe their own personal version of God's truth than take God at his word. They said it. They admitted as much when they said, we thought he was going to redeem Israel. The actual truth is, he did redeem Israel. But they said, we thought he was going to, because in their minds, their version of a Messiah was someone who was going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire, reestablish the kingdom of David, and set up a physical kingdom. Their version of a Messiah was a Messiah who gains victory by conquest. By might, by power. And what Jesus had spent three years saying, and he wasn't shy about saying it, what he had spent three years saying was, guys, I am not coming to do that. I'm not coming to redeem and save by conquest. I'm coming to redeem and save by sacrifice. It's not about the power in my hands or my armies, it's about the power and my obedience to God and my love for you. That's the kind of Messiah I was coming to be. And it's not just like Jesus had appeared and just said that and they didn't get it because it was this new thought, right? What's he do? He has an hour and a half, unless they were like halfway, but he has an hour and a half Bible study with these guys on the way. Now can you imagine walking with Jesus that day And Jesus having a personal Bible study with you, going through every major passage in the Old Testament that ever talked about the Messiah, and showing how what Jesus actually experienced was exactly what God had always intended, and was not just exactly what God has always intended, but was absolutely necessary for the Messiah to fulfill the promise of old. It says he starts with Moses. So he starts in Genesis I imagine you probably started in Genesis chapter 3, right at the very beginning, where it says, God says, there's one coming, and the snake is going to bruise his heel. He's going to suffer. He's going to get hurt. Snake bite hurts. And Jesus says, what else does it say, guys? The snake will bruise his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. It's through suffering through sacrifice, that Jesus had redeemed the people of God and fulfilled the promise. But they didn't get it. And it's interesting to know, they still didn't recognize him. Right? Go on, and here's what it says in verse 28. So they're walking and they're having this Bible study, and I'm sure it's great. <laughs> Can't not be. And they're walking along. Now came to uh, sorry. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. This is verse twenty-eight. And he indicated that he would have gone further. They get to where they're going to the home in Emmaus, and Jesus says, "Well, guys, it's been great, but I've got more to do. I've got to go on." But they constrained him. They pleaded with him. They begged him. They said, "Please abide with us, sir, whoever you are, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. There's no reason to go on. It's going to get night. You don't want to do that. Look, we got food." got a place to sleep, come in here. And Jesus is convinced and he went in to stay with them. Now look at this, this is so fascinating. And such a beautiful picture. Remember, the resurrection is about giving us hope and purpose. And these two disciples were hopeless and purposeless. And Jesus came and said, well, you're hopeless and purposeless because your sin is blinding you to the truth of what I had to do. So he spends all that time talking to them about it, and then they sit down to eat, and now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Let me ask you, when you read that verse, does that remind you of any other account in Scripture? We celebrate it regularly. We did on Friday. This is a picture I mean, I don't, I, I, Cleopas and this other guy, I don't think they were at the Last Supper that night, but this is a picture of the Last Supper. Christ is recreating a very important aspect of what he did in communion with the 12 disciples. He broke the bread, he blessed it, and he gave it to them. Now, this is interesting. He's in their house, they're the hosts. They should be doing this for him. But Jesus says, I'm going to do this because I have the authority to do this, because I have the authority to be the Messiah, because I am your master. And just like he did in communion the night before he was killed, Jesus feeds his friends. And in that instant, what's it say? Their eyes were opened and they knew him. The act of communion is a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus, his body breaking on the cross, his blood being shed to cover the debt of sin And when they experienced the gospel at dinner with Christ, their blind hearts were opened. They finally understood. They were transformed by the gospel. For the first time, they saw Jesus for who he was. And what does Jesus do? He disappears. He vanishes. He leaves. He does that a lot today. Did that a lot. Didn't stick around very, very often. But Jesus leaves because there's more work to be done and these guys finally got what they needed. Then it was time to move on to the next thing. So they disappear. And what's it say Cleopas and his friend do? Let me find where my spot is. I lost it. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scripture to us? They're giving you a picture of what it felt like to have the Savior, the risen, resurrected Jesus next to them, explaining exactly who he was. And they had this feeling inside of them. Have your spirit ever caught on fire for the Lord? Do you understand what that feels like? to be close to Jesus and to be so excited and to be so moved by him that your heart is burning inside of you it wasn't bad indigestion they didn't need a tums their spirits were connected with Christ in a way they hadn't been before and everything he was saying to them though they didn't recognize it yet everything they said that he was saying to them was moving them they were moving to hope And then finally they understood who he was and hope was rekindled. And what do they do? They get up and they, now, I don't run seven miles. I don't want to run seven miles. I don't know how, I assume it didn't take an hour and a half. Although they were wearing sandals or maybe barefoot and that might be tough running on that. So I don't know. But they get up. They're so moved. They run back to Jerusalem. Remember when they left? Hopeless and purposeless. There's no reason to stay. But wait. Jesus is alive, like Mary said. There's no reason to stay home now. We've got to get back to what Jesus had started. We have to go back and we have to tell everyone that Jesus is alive. This also reminds me of another account in Luke, Luke chapter 2. It's a quiet night in Bethlehem, and a baby's born. And nothing's going on. It's no big deal, except his parents, who traveled a long way on a donkey couldn't find a place to sleep that was comfortable, so they're hanging out in the barn. That's got to be great. And the angels go, and they find shepherds, the least likely of all people, and they say, Get up, run to Jesus, check him out, and go tell everybody what you saw. And what they do? They got up, because I bet their hearts were burning as well. They were so moved that they couldn't help but stay there by their sheep. It didn't matter what happened to them. It didn't matter what happened to their jobs. They had to go see for themselves that the Messiah had been born, and then they had to go tell everybody. That's purpose. That's hope and purpose. You don't just leave your source of income if that's all you got, and it's not that great anyway, and it's not that much, and it's what you need. You don't just leave something like that to go check out a baby unless you're convinced that the Messiah had come. And these guys don't run back to the heart of where Jesus was killed and the heart of their hopelessness unless they are convinced that Jesus is alive, and they do, and they go back and they tell everybody. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, and they said, just like Mary, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Simon. And he told them about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread when Jesus shared the gospel with them. The gospel that was his death and his resurrection. Their hope was rekindled. And they had purpose again. And so as you think about the resurrection for your own life, I urge you, I beg you, To see Jesus the way he means to be seen. To open your eyes to the truth of Christ. To not let your sin cloud what you see in Jesus. Don't make Jesus what you want him to be. That's not right. And it's not enough. And it's not going to be helpful to you. Jesus has to be exactly who he said he was in order for you and I to have any hope of a future. I just want to read to you real quick Revelation 21. I want to give you a picture of the hope that comes from the resurrection of Jesus, from putting your faith and trust in him, from accepting what he did for you on the cross as a free gift, not ever having to earn the, great, uh, the grace and mercy of God. This is a picture of what is coming. Revelation 21 chapter 4 says this. John, the apostle, who ran that day and didn't see him in the tomb, but saw him later that evening, he's describing a vision he sees of eternity with God. And this is what it's going to be like. This is this is real hope. God will wipe away every tear. Revelation twenty one four. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Can you imagine? I can't fully imagine it, but I can get excited about what it could be a time, a place, a life, an eternity where there's no more tears no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, where all that's going to fade away, and we'll never have to experience that again. That is hope that you can put into your life. And what's great about the resurrection of Jesus is it's not just some far-off hope like that, but it's also a very real, everyday hope as well. The only way you could experience this eternity is to be made right with God and to have your sin washed away. And the only way that that's possible is by accepting the free gift of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sin. He became your sin. He bore that weight. And then he rose again on the third day, defeating death because the grave could not hold him. And if death could defeat Jesus, then it was was all in vain. There is no hope. All you have to do is put your faith in Christ and you are instantly welcomed into the family of God. You're his child, and you can look forward to this day when there is no more pain, sorrow, or tears, and everything is made brand new. The resurrection gives us hope, and it gives your life purpose. Just like these disciples, and just like the apostles did, if you just start reading in Acts and just read on, you'll see exactly what purpose these men and women experienced when they understood the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They understood that it was their new life goal to love God, to honor him in their life, and to share his message of salvation, his gospel, with others. I mean, that's a lifetime job, and that's the greatest purpose you could ever have, and it's based in the greatest hope of the resurrection. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. And Jesus, I thank you for choosing to come and to die, to experience the weight of the cross. Lord, in Hebrews, you tell us that Jesus chose willingly to come. He didn't count at loss. He didn't think he was losing out or, or was being treated unfairly, but he was glad to accept the weight of the cross, for me. So Father, I thank you for that. I thank you that it can kindle the hope and rekindle the hope in my life every day that Jesus is God and God is on his throne and there's coming a day when there's no more pain and no more sorrow, and I'm looking forward to that. Father, I thank you that the resurrection also gives us a purpose, something to live for, something to do that is meaningful, and matters because it's what jesus himself did father i pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not accepted christ and does not understand the hope and the purpose fullness of the resurrection lord that they would come to you that they would put their trust in you father you're the god of life you're the god of redemption the god of salvation no sin is too great and you want right now to save any who will come Father, I pray that anyone who's thinking about it, who's concerned with their own soul, would humble themselves before you and accept the gospel of Jesus. Father, we thank you, we love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.